Welcome to Cornerstone, where we are seeing lives changed through the truth of God's Word and the love of God's people. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from our lead pastor, Daniel Ostendorf. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. Well, good morning. It is great to be together. Um, Let me encourage you just to follow up on Kristen's comment. Take an opportunity this summer to serve in our children's ministry. Even if you know it's not your gifting or your calling long term, I I was just sitting here realizing that next week, Eric Fridge has offered to preach for me just to give me a chance to catch my breath. So I just shot Lori and Kristen email and said, hey, sign me up, coach. So I'm going to serve somewhere down that hallway. I don't know if I'm going to be a bathroom monitor or in the nursery or in the fifth grade. Um, But come join me, whether it's next weekend or one of the weekends. Come serve in the kids' area. Um, Sometimes I can tell you my personal story, but I was terrified of it, and I came to love it dearly. So, Well, talking about kids, I had a humbling experience this week. My wife's been really good about singing the First Peter 1, 3 through 5 song with my kids. So I'm laying in bed with them the other night. I said, okay, guys, do you know the verse? And Aaron's very adamant that you can't sing it with him. He has to do it by himself, and he has to get it right. Like, he is mad when he doesn't. So Aaron does it, my six-year-old, and then my four-year-old does it, and she gets it right. And then you know where this is going. They said, hey, Daddy, how about you? And it didn't go so well. Yeah, they definitely corrected me along the way. So what I thought we would do is I'm probably not the only one in this room who maybe could use a little refining on memorizing the passage for this series. So let's walk through it one more time together. I know we just sang it, so you've had a warm-up. But here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. I hope you're committing that to memory. Every time I prep for a Sunday sermon, I'm like, Lord, like, there's just such good truth here to rest on. And indeed, these three simple verses establish much of the identity and the work that that Peter has done in this first chapter and a half, because Peter knows that our identity matters. How we understand ourselves and the community of which we are a part shapes the way we live. It shapes the decisions we make. It shapes the values we hold. It, It shapes how we act. It shapes what we do do, and it shapes what we don't do. How many of us have had a grandparent or a parent say, you're a smith, cut it out and start acting like a smith, right? Or whatever your last name is, right? Maybe you've actually said those words to someone, right? Identity matters. And so the question of identity and particularly living out of our identity, you'll know is a very pressing one in our culture today. In fact, it has been, especially so in the last about 150, 200 years, ever since Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Enlightenment said, the the most significant part, the most truthful part about who you are is your inner self. It's those desires in you. Those are the truest things. And we've seen this idea in full bloom of late in the area of sexual identity. For many in our world, our passions, our desires, the things inside us are what define our identity rather than the physical bodies we have. 
Truth, the world has declared, is determined by our inner selves rather than our outer selves. Our inner selves are the best compass for our life moving forward. But here's the problem, church. It's a perspective on humanity that runs counter to the gospel. We are dead in our sins, blinded by them. And yet our world proclaims that this inner compass can be trusted and can lead us into that which is good and true. The truth is because of sin, our inner selves are a terrible guide to that which is good and true. And that was a key part of us coming to Christ was realizing that we were walking in the death of our sins. And though our world champions embracing this inner self, reality is playing out in some sobering ways. The rates of suicide and depression have and continue to rise significantly in the very groups our world is giving freedom to and the, world, the areas our world is celebrating. Our world, thinking that they're actually championing for their good, are actually pushing people towards deeper and deeper into their sin and deeper and deeper into despair with devastating consequences. But the place where we don't want to stop it is to say, well, then it must all be wrong. Because the truth is the world gets something right here. Our identity does matter. Our identity is significant. It is important. And Peter's establishing that and will continue to establish it throughout his letter. But the significance for us, church, is that our identity is not in ourselves. Our identity is in the truth of the gospel. It defines who we are. On one side of the gospel, we're dead in our sins. On the other side, because of Christ, we're a new creation. Well, today marks a transition point in Peter's letter that we've been working through. Uh, We've had some practical applications so far, but largely it's been theological in nature. He's been giving us the groundwork that we need to then live faithfully for God. Today we make a turn and we shift to highly practical with kind of the theological pulled in occasionally to remind us what he's doing. So today we shift to these practical applications. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and start turning to 1 Peter 2 verse 11. If you don't have a Bible today, maybe you forgot it at home, or maybe you don't own one, uh, there are Bibles along the back window. Grab one, and if you don't have one, keep it. There is no better gift we can give you than the Word of God. All right, well, as you're turning, let's do a bit of recap. Peter seeks to encourage the readers of his letter to follow Christ faithfully despite persecution, derision, and difficulties they face for following Jesus. Uh, Peter is rooting this call to faithfulness as followers of Christ in the identity of who they are, born again by God, this identity they've been given by God. And and Peter's saying that though the world shames you and says you've dishonored your family and your friends and your neighborhood, God has in fact given you the greatest honor of all. He has called you his children, his chosen people, his royal priesthood, and his holy nation a people of his own possession. And to cap it off, Peter ended last week's passage with this wonderful verse in chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What an encouragement to his readers and to us, church, that through Christ we have the most incredible identity possible. And summarizing Peter's message thus far, one commentator put it this way. He said these original readers must have felt as if they were breathing privileged and rarefied air. After all, Peter had dazzled them with the fresh and invigorating reminders that they had been born again to a living hope. 
To them belongs an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. They are recipients of God's prophetic promises. They are the people of God, the ones who will inherit heaven. Not since the day these believers first came, came followers of Jesus, had they been so filled with the sensation of how much God loved them. The author is absolutely right here, church. These are true for us as well. Do you catch a glimpse of how much God loves you? That he says, you are my people. You are my possession. You are a chosen race that I have called out. It's an amazing thing. Well, today we kick off these three weeks, as I said, that are more practical. How we live this life as God's people. And what he's going to do here is he's going to say, based off this identity that we've been unpacking, there's a couple of things you do. You, you put off the things that were your former way of life. You put on new things because of who God has made you. And you do them with a specific purpose that God might be glorified. So let's dive in starting in verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 2. Here we go. All right. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Verse 11 and 12 here at the beginning of today's passage is a single sentence in the Greek. So it's a single idea he's trying to get us to wrestle with. They provide a framework for what Peter is going to unpack over the next three weeks in the areas of public civic life, in the areas of work, and in the areas of marriage. Don't miss that these are examples that Peter is giving. These are not the only places we should apply these truths. What Peter is giving us here is something that should shape the entire way we live, not just the way we live in the public square, at work, and in marriage. But he will help us understand them with those three examples. All right, verses 11 and 12. Here's what Peter lays out in these two simple verses. First, based on our identity, we are aliens in this land. We are God's chosen people, so we are to live as his people. Second, we are called to put off, that is to stop doing what the world in our hearts call good, the passions of our flesh, and instead put on, choose to do what God has shown us as right through his word. And lastly, why do we do these things? So that others might come to know Jesus and glorify God. We live out of our identity. Our identity does not flow from what we do. And the world will get these backwards, and let's be honest, the church has gotten these backwards. When we get into those ideas of self-righteousness or, or a works-based salvation, we get these backwards. We do what's right, then I get to become a child of God. No, 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 Peter's saying, no, 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 you are a child of God, you are God's people, now you get to do what is right. You can't switch those two, though we try desperately to do so. All right, here's how Peter has unpacked this in detail. So let's start in verse 11. You are beloved. 
both by Peter and by the Lord. You are aliens, sojourners, temporary residents in a foreign land. This is who you are. It's your identity, and it defines the way you should live. It's an identity based on the truths of chapter 1 that we looked at, that Peter's readers have been born again to a new life through Jesus Christ. As God's people in this world, then, you are to abstain from, that is to keep away from, to avoid, to put off, to use language he used earlier in chapter 1, the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, this is not just simply some intellectual idea that Peter is putting forward. Catch the word urge. This is really kind of as much force as urge has for us, it doesn't have nearly enough as the Greek does. The Greek here is, I strongly urge, I I strongly appeal to you. This is Peter getting passionate because he loves his readers. And he wants them to get the idea he's about to unpack. Abstain here is the idea of keeping away from or avoiding these passions. Uh, Church, we are to stay away from the thoughts, the places, the things that in our former life led us into sin. And even as Christ's children lead us back into sin. What Peter has called the passions of our former ignorance before Christ. Uh, Lastly, the word here, wage war, is really important. It's the Greek word strateo. It's the desires of our flesh are literally like soldiers fighting for our souls. They are literally at war with us for our souls to get us to cave into them. The verb tense here indicates that this is something that is ongoing. This is not a one-and-done battle. This is a daily battle that's being waged with our passions. These passions are relentless. And as with any war, there are two sides, our passions and then how we respond. We do not get to sit on the sidelines in this battle and watch it play out in front of us. This is an idea I think that's worth sitting with. I don't know about you, but I feel like we have stopped in some ways in the church, stopped talking about these daily battles we face. We almost assume that I come to Christ and and I shouldn't struggle with these things anymore. These these temptations shouldn't be knocking at my door. And yet that's not what scripture indicates, that we come to the Lord and we still wage war with these former ways of doing life. Yes, as we follow Christ, as our mind is renewed, it will be easier to call out the enemy and to thwart the attacks. But they will not stop until we're with Christ. Peter is pushing back on the idea that you come to Christ and everything's easy. In fact, he's making life more difficult and highlighting how difficult life is as a Christ follower. Peter here is echoing what we see in Genesis 4 when God tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you but you must master it. Uh, Peter's using the imagery of war, and it seems to me that there are at least three ways to lose a battle. Now, it could be, there could be more, but there's at least three. Uh, one, you could be defeated in war. Two, you can give up and surrender. And three, the enemy can fool you into thinking they're actually your friend and not the enemy you should be fighting. Now, on the first one, as Christians, Christ has defeated sin and death. And so we can't really be defeated by sin because Christ has conquered sin. So that's not really what's at play here. But I would argue that maybe the other two things are. That we are still tempted to surrender to this daily battle that our passions force on us. The temptation. Or, which might be just as common in our world, we're tempted to consider these things actual good things rather than bad things. That sin, perhaps, if it's a specific sin in our life, is not really all that bad or not bad at all. 
The world will tell us a thousand different ways that we should follow the passions of our flesh. Right, you see this in every advertisement, you see this in every magazine. You do you, be true to yourself. That's the message that we get every day, and it's at the heart of the sexual identity revolution. A revolution that has made noble these passions that Peter says is at war for our souls. Our world has said, those passions are noble goods. You should embrace them. Peter says, no, those are not noble goods. They're leading you to death. Now, we know when thinking clearly that it's these very passions, these sins, that Christ died for. And so these things that Christ died for that separate us from God cannot lead us to good things because they're the very thing that led us away from God. And yet, somewhere along the journey, we lose sight of that truth of the gospel. Somewhere along the journey, we decide, eh, maybe God died for, Jesus died for these sins, but this one wasn't really something he had to die for, right? It's not a big deal. Maybe jealousy really isn't that big of a sin. Or we lose sight of the fight, and we just stop fighting altogether. We stop being transformed in the image of Christ. Instead, we're conformed in the passions of our flesh. So whether through wearing us down through direct frontal attacks or through psychological warfare, we are constantly at war with passions of our flesh and the sin that knocks our door. And what's interesting in this passage is notice that last word. This is not just for our lives. It's for our souls. Despite what we tell ourselves and what our world will say, Every sin, no matter how good it feels, no matter how innocuous it seems, does damage to our souls. Now remember, he's writing to believers here. So what does he mean? Well, these sins damage our obedience to Christ. Because by giving in to them, we are no longer submitting to the authority of God and dying to ourselves. They damage our understanding of sin. Because maybe this isn't a sin, and so we start to diminish the gospel and our need for it. Or, because we give in to these sins, it diminishes the impact of God's grace. And so whatever it is, sin is doing damage to our souls the way we understand the good news of the gospel. Theologian and pastor Jerry Bridges puts it this way. So often, we are troubled with a persistent sin only because it disturbs our peace and makes us feel guilty. We need to focus on it as an act of rebellion against God. This is a war, and far too many of us have surrendered to the enemy or been fooled by their lies. The result is, church, that we start looking a whole lot more like the world around us than we do like the people of God we were called to be. So Peter is saying, avoid the passions of flesh that wage war daily and constantly for your soul, and actively, in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, maybe the the most clear question here is, what does honorable mean? Like, we don't use that a whole lot in our world. Does it really have definition? Well, in the Greek, it's the word kalos. It's it's not actually the most common word for honor because it has more to it than what we typically think of. Kalos is not just moral goodness or ethical rightness. There's also an element of aesthetic worth and beauty to this kind of honor. One commentary described it this way, a goodness that commends itself to the beholder by both its nobility, doing the right thing, and its attractiveness. And note why. Why in this verse are we supposed to do these things? 
So that the very people who call you not just evil, but evil doers, doers of evil, they will see these honorable actions, these good actions, and give glory to God. Church, we, we do what's right not because we can expect the world at some point to celebrate or congratulate or cheer us on. Sorry, if you're waiting for 20, America in 2023 to celebrate the Christian way of life, it's not going to happen. We don't do what's right because it might get us a better life or a bigger bank account, though there are churches in this town that will convince you that's exactly what God will do. No, we live according to God's word and we follow him out of our identity with the desire and the hope and the aspiration that others might come to know Christ, that they too might know this identity, this freedom that he's given us, even if we get nothing else for it. It's the idea behind what Jesus calls his disciples to in Matthew 5. Take a look at this. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Church, as we think back over the scandals that have rocked the the Christian evangelical church world in recent years, from pastors stealing money to to abusing their authority and sexual abuse of those who, who trusted them for leadership, Those individuals did not do what was honorable. They gave in to the passions of their flesh. And because they did so, because they gave in the sin that crouched at their door, they ended up being the very doers of evil that the world called them, they said they were. And furthermore, they have pushed people away from God's church and from the good news of the gospel because the world says, well, if that's the way Christians behave, I want nothing to do with it. I don't imagine I'm the only one in this room who has family or friends in recent years who've said, I'm done with church. I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with the Bible because if that's the way Christians behave, I'm not interested. You see, church, our actions matter. Not just for our own souls, but for the souls and eternity of others. Somebody came up to me in between services today and said, Daniel, I heard this week on the radio that we may be the only Bible people read. Well, I hope that's not true because God's word is much more powerful than my life. I do want my life to point people to the truth of the gospel. We must always proclaim the gospel with our mouths, but don't miss the fact that the way we live gives credence to what we say and to the God we worship. So church, because we are God's exiles in this world, we are to avoid sin and we are to choose to live lives that are above reproach. We are, to borrow from Paul, to die to ourselves. That others might come to know Christ. In so doing, we know that sin, the passions of the flesh, wage war. Here's an important piece, not just on our souls, but on the souls of everyone who gives into those passions. And so we rightfully advocate for things that call people to do what's right, even if they don't see that it's right. To answer a question I got from a church member this week, how do I engage in the public square? I think Paul or Peter is giving us some answers here. It is right that we advocate for things that are in accordance with God and his word and the way he created the world, knowing that it is better for those people's souls, even if they don't understand it, and that God might use that to bring them to him. We advocate at abortion centers and for the end of abortion, not simply to save the life of the baby, though that's important. We do so with the hope that the mother might come to recognize her need for Jesus and be born again to new life. 
And as our world does, we will be called evildoers for doing that, even as we do good. At church, we speak out against homosexual marriage, not because we don't love those struggling with those passions. No, we speak out against it because we desperately love them. Because God died for them, and he wants them to know that their souls go deeper and deeper and trap deeper and deeper by giving in to those passions. That there is not freedom found at the end of that rainbow. There is just more slavery and more death. So we advocate for things of God because we love people. And we know that acting in accordance with God's word is good for them, even if they don't know it. When Jeremiah called on those living in Babylon to seek the good of the city and to pursue it, to actively work for it, he was not saying, seek that which Babylon thinks is good and pursue it. He was not saying, find the the latest business plan that Babylon has set up as good and pursue that. No, he's saying, seek the good as defined by God and pursue that good in the midst of Babylon because that is good for the city. So there are four components that Peter is laying out. Based on our identity as God's children, we put away our old desires and we put on and embrace the life, the good deeds, the calling that God has given us as his people so that others might know Christ and glorify God. We don't glorify God until we know Christ typically. So this model applies to all areas of our life and Peter first is going to apply it to living in the very, very non-Christian world of the ancient Roman Empire. But it applies to us today in the public sphere. So let's take a look at verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Maybe the the four components we've been looking at jump straight off uh, the page to you. They're in verses 15 and 16. What is our identity? We are servants or slaves of God. What are we to put off? Now, this one's inferred, not as explicit, but we're to put off the evil we've been doing and covering up with God's grace. That time in which we give into our passion, say, well, God's grace covers that. And Peter says, no, stop it. That is not what you were given your freedom for to continue to do the things that you shouldn't do. And what are we to put on and start doing? Well, we're to submit to human institutions, to authorities, and to do good. Why? So that by so doing, we're doing it for God's sake, not ours, that those who speak out against us as Christians, as evildoers, might be silenced by our right actions. All right, so this is the basic heart of these verses. Let's walk through it in detail. Picking up in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Literally, submit to the authority of those over you. The Greek here is actually more direct. It's every human created institution. So here's where it gets really uncomfortable for us as Texans. We don't get to say, all right, God, you instituted your church, so that's an authority I can sit under. God, you instituted kind of your authority, so I can sit under yours. But all these ones over here, the the federal government, the state government, heaven forbid, my HOA, like those ones I don't have to submit to. And Peter's making very clearly here, no, 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 no. As a citizen of God's world, 
you are called to submit to all these human created authorities. We'll talk about a caveat to that here in a second. But Peter does not let us wiggle out of this. Should be uncomfortable. It's not biblical authority, so it doesn't count. It's not an excuse. We are specifically called to submit to every human created authority. This is really uncomfortable. And here's what we might say in our conversation with God. Really, God, you want me to submit myself to the authority of a president, a governor, a mayor that I don't agree with? God's response would be, yes. That's exactly what my people do as my people in a foreign land. Our response might be, but why, God? That doesn't make sense. They're not honoring you with their actions. And God says, for my name's sake, that the world may come to know and see me be because you're acting that way. Here's an example for us, and Peter's going to unpack this in more detail next week. But think of the way that Christ went to his death. He didn't go to death calling for revolution. He didn't go to his death decrying the injustice of the rabbi and the the rabbinic system. He he didn't go to death uh, decrying the excesses of Roman power. No, instead, he submitted to the Roman authorities and trusted that God would be honored through it. We'll see that unpacked more next week. All right, but here's, here's an important piece of this. Note the role of these civic authorities as designed by God. To punish evil and to praise what is good. This is what earthly authorities are tasked with doing by God. This is their job that they're called to do. Doesn't mean they always do it. It does not take long for us to look in our own world to see earthly authorities doing exactly the opposite. Praising that which is evil and punishing that which is good. And here's where it's a really important element that we remember where our first allegiance is. The scripture makes clear repeatedly that though we are called to submit to earthly governing authorities, we don't do so unquestioningly. Back in April, we studied Acts 4. Peter's response to Sanhedrin when they called him and John to say, stop proclaiming good news of salvation in Christ alone. And do you remember what Peter told them? Take a look at Acts 4, verses 19 through 21. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Because here's the important piece we need to remember. Our home, our citizenship, our first loyalty is in heaven, and our first submission is the king of kings, the one true God. So as we submit to to earthly authorities that we may not want to submit to, we do so always first submitted to God's authority as his bondservants and his slaves. As a result, obedience to God may on occasion mean disobedience to earthly authorities authorities. But Peter is making clear, our standard MO as Christ's followers is to submit to the authorities and leaders over us. We don't get to say, well, I really don't want to pay taxes, so I'm not going to pay taxes. I really don't like this part of my government, so I'm not going to follow that part of my government. No, unless it's directly asking you to disobey God's word, God says you submit to them as my people. Before we return to 1 Peter 1, I want you to notice how Luke, in writing Acts, actually affirms the principles we're seeing play out in Peter. 
Peter and John, because they've been saved by God and called to proclaim the good news of Christ, they put off two fears. They put off a fear of the Sanhedrin, who had just killed Christ. They also put off a anger, a hatred, a, a frustration with these very people who killed their Savior. Those would have been two natural responses if they had followed the passions of their flesh. Either I'm scared of these guys or I hate these guys because they killed Christ. John and Peter put those things off and instead they pull on what God has asked them to do because their citizenship is in heaven. And so they boldly proclaim the gospel. They still honor the Sanhedrin leadership and say, hey, you judge, are we supposed to obey God or you? And they say at the end of the day, we have to obey God. And at the end of the day, what's the result? The people praise God for what God's doing. All right, well, let's return back now to 1 Peter 2, 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In many ways, John and, and Peter put to silence the Sanhedrin that day. God's desire, his will, is that, that by living as the people he's called us to be, the world will be seen for what it truly is, foolish the world has tried to seek life and, and, and prosperity on its own terms, and that is a dumpster fire of all dumpster fires. But we are not going to convince a fallen world that that's true. We simply live a different way, and they, they see the foolishness of their own choices. Well, Peter then goes on to say, we don't do this because we have to. We, we are not indentured servants that are forced to do this. No, we are free in Christ to do the good things God has called us to do. We don't have to follow the passions of our flesh like those who are not saved are as they're enslaved. Check out 1 Peter 2.16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, this letter that Peter's writing goes to the Asia area of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And among the cities that would have received this letter are the churches, or among the churches are the churches in the area of Galatia. Now, you might know that in our New Testament, we have a letter written from Paul to the churches in Galatia. And what's interesting is in Galatians 5, at the very beginning of that chapter, here's what Paul says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, almost this language of military resistance again, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, to your former passions and your way of life. Church, there's a lie the world would have us believe, that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want, to do whatever we please. That's true freedom. But the truth is that true freedom is having the choice to do what is right or wrong, what is good or evil. Non-believers do not have this freedom. They are still slaves to their sin. But because of our new life in Christ, because of the freedom we have been given, we are not slaves to the passions of our former way of life. We can be transformed and we can renew our minds through the work of God's word to become more like Christ. So Peter is saying you are God's servants, their identity. So live like it in this world where you submit to the authorities that are over you, showing those on earth what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. We may not like the rules. We may not like the, the things that people tell us we have to do. But Peter is saying live in such an honorable way a way that is above reproach, that people will see you and say, where does this come from? How could you live in that way in the midst of this government or this authority? And God might just use it to draw them to himself. So here's the principles that Peter has laid out one more time. 
that we are to understand our identity as citizens of God's kingdom, temporary residents in this world. Oh, we are to avoid acting and behaving on our desires, our passions, the things the world would encourage us to chase. And instead, we are to live as obedient citizens of heaven, children of God, his own people. And we do so with the hope that others might become what we are, children of God, God's own people, who are free to do that which is right. And one of the most memorable verses in this letter Peter sums up our call to faithfully living as God's people in the public square in this way. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Notice here, give to the emperor the honor you give to everyone, and give to everyone the honor you give to the emperor. In the ancient Roman world, the emperor was almost deified, if not deified in some eras. And so Peter's making very clear the emperor is human. And you will honor him in the same way that you honor everyone else. So honor them as well. Here's what's not insignificant here. We are called to honor our parents to submit to their authority as long as it doesn't lead us in disobedience to God. And we are called to esteem our parents regardless if they are worthy of that esteem. We are called to honor others, including every human institution. Church, don't miss this fact that Peter is asking Christians receiving this letter to give the the world around them, everyone, including the emperor, the very thing they are not being given. Peter's saying, give everyone around you the very thing they don't give you. They call you evildoers. They say you've dishonored your family, your faith, your people. And Peter's saying, as God's chosen people, ones who have been given the greatest honor by God, give honor to others regardless if they deserve it. Do this not because of them and that they've earned it, but because of the one you serve who has given you honor you didn't deserve. As you honor all, show the world what true love looks like in the way you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. The love here is agape love. It's that faithful, perseverant, self-sacrificing, compelling love. It's a love that when our world sees it, they shake their head and they say, this doesn't make sense. Why would you love like this? It's the love of Mother Teresa to the untouchables in India. It's the love of Elizabeth Elliot to take the gospel to the very tribe that killed her husband and made her a widow at the age of 30. It's the love for the Cook family that overflowed this room on Wednesday and has provided meals for them through August. This is part of how we show the world who we belong to. uh, Jesus tells his disciples in John 13, By this all people will know that you are my my disciples, if you have love for one another. Lastly, note what Peter doesn't say in the next phrase. He doesn't say, fear the emperor. This would have been the classic Roman phrase. You would have expected it. Fear the emperor. No, Peter says, fear God. Your master, the king of kings, the ruler above all rulers, the sovereign of the kingdom to which you are true citizens, the citizenship you desire and you've been given that you didn't deserve, that's the king you should fear. Fear God, the one who's given you honor above all honor. Don't fear men. This is how we are to live as God's people, under human authorities that we don't agree with and we don't like, in a way that shows the world we are God's people, in a way that we pray and hope they see and give glory to our Father in heaven.
Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to sit with the question, this question in two more areas, in work and marriage, and, and we're going to continue to unpack the same structure. So as we go into this week, I want to challenge us to consider these four areas, these four components that Peter has unpacked. First of all, your identity. Do you know Christ? Have you come to place your faith in him? Are you actually this new creation? Have you been freed from the bondage of your sin? Are you a child of God? And if not, that's the place to start because you can't do the rest of this without it. And if you are, if you've placed your trust in Christ, do you understand what you've been given? Do you know what it means to be a child of God, to be the people of God, to be his chosen race? If not, maybe spend some time this week sitting with that idea and say, Holy Spirit, through your word, help me to understand more deeply and more, um, more fully what it means that my identity is in Christ. Do you know what you need to avoid? Do you know what the sins are that you need to cast off and stay away from? Many of us probably do, but some of us maybe don't. Maybe we've grown, grown callous to them, and we think, well, actually, that one wasn't a sin, and, and so we've brought in an enemy as a friend into our lives, and we need to call it for what it is. It's sin, and it needs to be out of our lives. Or maybe we're just so tired we've stopped fighting, and there's an area of our life where we've given the enemy territory. And that territory is not only impacting our lives, it's impacting our souls and our appreciation of the gospel. So maybe this week you need to spend some time and say, Holy Spirit, open my eyes. Where have I stopped fighting? Where have I bought into a lie that an enemy is actually a friend and I've allowed sin to come into my life? Or maybe you're this third one, and you need to wrestle with this question of God. What is the good I'm called to do as a, as a father, as a husband, as a worker, as a, as a neighbor in my community? What are the good deeds you're calling me to? So maybe this week you need to open God's word and say, Holy Spirit, help me to understand what is it that means to live faithfully as a citizen of you in this world? What are the good deeds I'm supposed to put on? And lastly, and maybe this is the most uncomfortable one, some heart work. Why do we do these things? Do we do these things hoping that God might make our life a little bit easier? Do we do these things hoping that things just might work out in the end for us in a better way than they are? Or do we do these things because at the end of the day, if the persecution gets worse, if our life gets more difficult, if things in this life don't get better, the thing we truly care about is that people come to know Christ. And if by living as his citizens in this world faithfully for him would bring one more soul to Christ, then we would do it regardless of the cost. Because our Savior paid the cost for us. Church, if we know Christ and we are in him, we are God's chosen people. We are called to live like it in this world where we are his ambassadors so others might come to know him. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Father, I thank, the way, thank you for the ways in which you make us uncomfortable, which you challenge us. I, I recognize that in the gospel, Lord, that the gospel is challenging and it, and it confronts our sin and it, it forces us to own up to the sin that we have embraced, the sin that has separated us from you. And it, and it forces us to say, I can do nothing except place my faith and trust in Christ to be restored to you, Father. There's nothing I can do. Father, the other thing that gets uncomfortable is, is once we've trusted in you and we've been given this new identity by you as your children, is to realize, Lord, that sometimes we stop fighting. 
But sometimes we've given up. Sometimes we've called sin good. And Lord, that we're not always living as people of your kingdom. We oftentimes spend a lot of time trying to live as people of this kingdom. So Father, I just pray for myself. I pray for everyone in this room. Lord, I pray, first of all, that we would know new life in you. Lord, that we would place our faith and trust in Christ for the salvation and forgiveness of our sins for our salvation. And and Lord, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know that, I pray that they would. And then, Lord, I pray that you'd help all of us to to deepen our understanding of our identity in you, what it means to be your people. And then, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we might avoid and put off the sin that so easily entangles, and that we might put on and choose the things that will conform us, not in the image of our best selves, but in the image of Christ, that by living for you, Father, others would come to know the joy and the freedom we've been given as your children. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so grateful that we get to be your people because of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.